Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Welcome to the show today. We're excited here at the Cancer Support Community to announce one of our newest programs, Living Healthy with Cancer, which is made possible with support from Pfizer. This patient education program aims to provide valuable information and resources to patients in active treatment. The program's goal is to raise awareness about the physical and emotional needs of someone living with cancer. We all know or can certainly at least imagine how challenging a cancer diagnosis can be and how it turns one's daily life upside down. So the goal of the program is uh, and to Today's show, frankly, is to highlight many of the things patients and caregivers can do to ensure that they're taking steps toward a healthy life and to understand the elements of a healthy lifestyle. These elements are achievable while living with cancer. Um, it, we want folks to know that working with your healthcare team and maintaining a healthy lifestyle throughout your cancer experience and beyond can help you feel empowered, give you a renewed sense of control, and even improve your overall quality of life. So today I'm excited to bring three guest experts on the show to help us navigate the topic uh, in, in some key areas around living well with cancer. Remember that everyone's cancer experience is different. So be sure to talk to your healthcare team to help you take the right steps toward a healthy lifestyle. Joining me today are Dr. William Schaffner. He is currently the chair of the Department of Preventive Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Schaffner is one of the country's leading experts on infectious diseases with more than 30 years of public health experience. He's also a member of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, and he is the current president of the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases. Welcome, Dr. Schaffner. Hi, Kim. Good to be with you. We are also here with Susan Bratton. Susan is founder and CEO of Meals to Heal, a comprehensive cancer nutrition service. Susan founded Meals to Heal in 2011 due to a personal uh, experience with cancer and her desire to help patients and caregivers receive access to safe, evidence-based oncology, nutrition, and information. Welcome, Susan. Thank you very much, Kim. 
Also here with us is Jill Vanek. Jill is a board-certified acute care nurse practitioner at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Jill is a published author on articles on cancer malignancies and is an active member of the Oncology Nursing Society. Hi, Jill. Hi. Thanks for having me. So on uh, today's show, we'll be breaking down the topic of living healthy with cancer through four different areas and work to offer some advice to those looking to take uh, steps to a healthier life with cancer. We'll address healthy eating and learn tips to incorporate that into your daily routine. We'll also cover the topic of vaccines, if they're safe, which type, if any, uh, our experts recommend for cancer patients. We'll cover exercise, why it's important for those living with cancer and how you can incorporate some activity into your daily life. And finally, we'll discuss mental health and social and emotional care through a cancer diagnosis, one of our favorite topics here at the Cancer Support Community and one that we address often uh, so that we can help our listeners and their loved ones address the emotional side of cancer. So now that you have a little bit of background on what we're going to cover uh, today, let's turn to our guests for further insight. All right, team, here we go. Um, Susan, I'm going to start with you. I'd like to talk about healthy eating. So I'm going to turn to you as our nutrition expert. Um, Susan Bratton, you founded Meals to Heal in 2011 due to a personal experience with the nutritional issue of cancer patients. Can you talk more about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I had a number of friends and family with cancer over the last couple of years, and all of them, without exception, had nutritional issues and nutritional side effects. But The event that was the catalyst to founding Meals to Heal was the loss three years ago of a very dear friend of mine who had a glioblastoma. And um, during his treatment that I was fairly involved with, he and his family, he struggled um, to find ways to help him take in proper nutrition. So I became very tuned into this whole cancer nutrition field at the time. And um, after he passed away, I began to really do a deep dive into cancer nutrition and read a lot of peer-reviewed journal articles. And what I found was was quite startling. Uh, 50 to 80% of all cancer cases involve nutritional issues. Malnutrition is the number two secondary diagnosis in cancer patients. And 30% of all cancer deaths are due to severe malnutrition. So it's a huge and pervasive issue. I also found that one of the biggest impediments to patients receiving proper nutrition was fatigue. They're just simply sometimes too tired, um, and they struggle to find safe, evidence-based information on cancer and nutrition. And as you know, there's a lot of misinformation and um, anecdotal evidence out there on the, on the Internet. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to sort through. And the other thing that I found was that there's a great deal of evidence uh, that dietetic counseling and nutritional, targeted nutritional intervention actually improves clinical and quality of life outcomes. So treating and addressing nutrition and nutritional um, issues really has a number of benefits. And um, this includes fewer treatment suspensions, preventing weight loss, fewer and less severe side effects, improved response to treatment, improvements in quality of life. So all of this led me to say, hey, there's really a need here, and I want to help people out like my friend Eric, so I created Meals to Heal. So, Susan, I imagine that uh, just like everybody's cancer experience is different, that people living with cancer have different dietary needs, um, you know, one person to the next, but also perhaps different than the general uh, general public. So can we talk a little bit about, you know, what some of those unique needs are of people with cancer, what their unique nutritional and dietary needs are, and, um, uh, you know, and then what kind of recommendations are available to them to get onto a good good path? Sure. So um, their dietary needs, the answer to that question is kind of yes and no. Yes, their dietary needs are different. 
in that both cancer and cancer treatment can result in a variety of changes that necessitate nutrition and nutritional strategies that differ quite, uh, quite a lot from the general public. So, for example, some tumors can increase metabolic rate, which in turn increases caloric requirements. Pancreatic cancer patients have unique needs in that they often require pancreatic enzymes. And head and neck cancers, for example, drastically impair patients' ability to eat. So these are all examples of how they have unique needs. But on the other hand, their needs are also the same and similar mm-hmm. to the general public in that it's, it's very important to receive a healthy diet that's comprised of the right balance of macro and micronutrients and an appropriate amount of calories based on weight, height, and metabolic needs. So what we like to say is you should always strive to ensure that your diet is well-balanced and comprised of fresh fruits and vegetables, lean proteins when you don't have weight loss issues, whole grains and legumes, for example, but to, and to avoid highly processed foods that are lacking in nutritional value. Um, so the advice is really strive for a well-balanced diet, but then tailor it and make adjustments as necessary to meet uh, your, unique, your unique needs as a, as a patient. The second thing I would say is always consult with a registered dietitian who's experienced in oncology and work with them to develop a personalized dietary program that's based on, again, the patient's specific nutritional needs. And then the last thing, um, and you mentioned this at the beginning of the program, always consult with your oncologist. Keep him in the loop, he or her in the loop, and and let them know what you are doing from a a dietary and nutrition perspective. It's important that they know what's what's going on. So talk a little bit, Susan, about, so you say talk to a registered dietitian. Um, where, where, Where do I find... Uh, where do I find that person if I'm someone with cancer? Where do I find a registered dietitian? Is that something I have to pay for out of pocket, or is that something that my insurance will cover? If I'm having some concerns about, you know, the uh, you know, side effects that are impacting nutrition, impacting my ability to eat, and I want to find the right path and the right resources, how do I do that? So one of the best places to go is to the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Um, they have a great website where you can actually go in and type in your zip code or your city and state, and you can find a dietitian in your geography and your city and, and, and state. And the other thing that we recommend is, if possible, try to find a registered dietitian that has a CSO credential, and CSO stands for Certified Specialist in Oncology. And what this means is that they've taken 2,000 clinical hours, they have 2,000 clinical hours in oncology, and they've passed a national certification exam. Um, the one thing I would also say with that, which is a caveat, um, this is a fairly new credential. So there are many, many terrific, well-experienced dietitians at some of the leading cancer centers that don't hold the CSO. Mm-hmm. So while it's a great thing to strive for, um, you know, uh, there are many great dietitians that don't have the CSO. So, so make sure that they're experienced in, most importantly, in oncology and that they have the registered dietitian credential. Um, what, are the, what are point. those credentials, Susan, of a registered dietitian? What is that? Um, what it means is that they've gone through, they've done a specific amount of coursework and passed a national exam to get the registered dietitian, the RD credential. The RD credential. Great. Mm-hmm. And so I could, I could go to this website if I'm being treated in a hospital or a cancer center. Can I find somebody there? And can we talk a little bit about what, what, what they'll do for me and, um, and, how, and how that service is paid for? So um, generally speaking, dietetic counseling is not covered by insurance. So it is an out-of-pocket uh, expense. So that's the first thing, and that's unfortunate. And I know that the AND, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, has been lobbying pretty hard 
to try to get um, dietetic counseling covered just because there's such great evidence of its benefit. Um, in terms of what they would do is they would sit down with the patient and they would they would take a, a, do a nutritional assessment. There's one called the PGSGA, which um, is is used in a lot of cancer centers. And what that does is it, it determines what sort of nutritional side effects patients are having. Are they having nausea and vomiting, difficulty swallowing, changes in taste, lack of taste, have they lost weight, how much weight have they lost, then based on that, the dietitian will actually work with the patient to come up with a nutritional plan and recommend uh, meals that the patient can eat and, and um and how to, you know, how to, how to prepare uh, meals that will be helpful for them. So they will also work with them to provide specific recommendations for how to mitigate some of the, the, the common side effects. And how important, Susan, is family um, in this conversation? How important is it to have, uh, you know, perhaps a family member or a caregiver in these conversations? And, and uh, you know, if, if, we, if you have a caregiver who wants to get educated and understand these issues, you know, maybe I'm the one cooking for the person with cancer or, or, or you know, I'm the, I need to understand this as well as the patient. Um, do, do we oftentimes see family members involved in these sessions? Yes, and, and I think it's very important that the family members are involved, um, not only because they're the ones that are cooking for the patient, but also because it will help them understand that a lot of times a patient, you know, a caregiver may cook something that the patient doesn't eat, and, it, and oftentimes I hear from a lot of oncologists, in fact, and dietitians that it creates a, a little bit of conflict because it's really frustrating for the caregiver to cook something with, with, you know, love involved, and then it's not eaten, and it's not eaten because of the nutritional side effects sometimes. So I think it also helps to educate the caregivers about the specific nutritional issues as well as helping them with, um, uh, you know, creative tips for helping mitigate those side effects. I think it's, I think it's essential. You know, cancer is not a disease that just impacts the patient. It impacts an entire family, uh, a family unit. And so tell us again as we're getting to our break here, Susan, uh, if, I'm, uh, if I'm being treated for cancer, if I'm a caregiver, how I, find a, um, how I find a registered dietitian, you know, what are the right questions for me to ask and how I begin down that path? Sure. So the, the simplest and quickest way is to go to eatright.org, which, which is the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics website. Um, type in your, your zip code or your city and state and try to find a, a registered dietitian with the CSO credential. Um, and then then I, what I would do is set up an appointment, ask about how much experience they have in oncology, and then have them do an assessment of the patient. I think that's the most important thing. Great. Perfect. This is, uh, this is, this is great advice um, that we're covering here today. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're talking about living healthy uh, with cancer at CSC. We have a new program uh, that is launching a Living uh, Healthy with Cancer program where we are talking about uh, diet, we are talking about uh, exercise, we are talking about uh, medical management, all of the pieces that, that uh, come along with the cancer diagnosis. It's certainly a, you know, sort of a complex time and the you know, a lot of challenging information and misinformation uh, out there about how to deal with some of these issues. We wanted to get the experts today. We wanted to get the facts uh, to help you live well with cancer. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Being here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern-day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss being here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern with Ariel and Shia Kane right here on the 7th Wave Network. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, and today I'm joined by Dr. Schaffner from the Department of Preventive Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, Susan Bratton from Meals to Heal, and Jill Vanek, a nurse practitioner at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. We're talking today about the Cancer Support Community's newest program, Living Healthy with Cancer, uh, which is made possible through support from Pfizer. The program aims, uh, aims to give those living with cancer the tools to live a healthy life uh, through exercise, nutrition, emotional well-being, and medical management. I want to pull Dr. Schaffner into the conversation to talk uh, about a hot topic in the medical world today, which are which are vaccines. Um, Dr. Schaffner, we hear a lot um, about vaccines. Can you outline uh, for us the different types and categories of vaccines that are available today? Sure, Kim. I'd be glad to do that. And uh, vaccines are not just for children. They're for adults also. So we have a, a large spectrum of vaccines uh, that children normally get. We're all acquainted with those. Uh, Everything from polio, tetanus, uh, diphtheria, um, a rotavirus vaccine to prevent diarrheal disease, measles, mumps, rubella, which is German measles, and the like. So there's a whole panoply of those. When we talk about uh, adults, we're talking about 
um, making sure that we all get our influenza vaccine, and this applies to children also, on an annual basis, as well as a vaccine against uh, a common form of pneumonia, namely pneumococcal vaccine. Uh, older adults are eligible for a vaccine that prevents shingles, which uh, we can talk about if you like. And uh, uh, so there are any number of vaccines that are available today that will keep healthy people uh, even healthier. Two that I'd like to mention, yes. it may come as a bit of a surprise to your listeners because we have two anti-cancer vaccines, that is, cancer prevention vaccines. The first is the hepatitis B vaccine. Hepatitis B is a viral infection of the liver. It causes a chronic infl inflammation that can lead to progressive liver damage and an illness called cirrhosis, and that on down the road can be a, a predecessor to primary liver cancer, cancer that originates in the liver. Okay. Relatively uncommon in the United States, very common in many developing countries, and the World Health Organization is now using hepatitis B vaccine around the world to try to prevent this primary form of liver cancer. So the are United there people States, in the United States who should be getting that vaccine for any reason? Yeah, now in the United States, every child that's born in the United States gets hepatitis B vaccine, and the recommendation is that every child from birth through 18 years of age until their 19th birthday be vaccinated. The indications for adults are a little bit more complicated. All of us who are healthcare workers uh, get hepatitis B vaccine. There is a general recommendation that since this is a sexually transmitted uh, illness and one that can also be transmitted on needles by medical practitioners, but more often uh, by people who use needles illicitly, uh, the recommendation is that everyone who is not in a long-term committed monogamous relationship, and monogamous is a word that doesn't take a modifier, like usually. So unless you're in a committed <laughs> monogamous relationship, you ought to be uh, immunized against hepatitis B, as well as people who obviously are uh, drug users. And there's a new recommendation that everyone with diabetes now be vaccinated against hepatitis B. So that's one anti-cancer vaccine. The other and everybody with either type 1 or type 2 diabetes or just type 1 diabetes? Uh, both. Throughout the ages, you know, every child, and that's where most of the uh, type 1 diabetes is, should mm -hmm. be vaccinated just per routine, healthy, anyway. diabetic, every, every kind of child. And then the newest recommendation from the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices is that everyone with diabetes, their practitioner, should as quickly as possible vaccinate them. It turns out that people with diabetes matched age for age, et cetera, have a higher rate of diabetes than do their non-diabetic counterparts. Mm. So once that was firmly established and uh, the data are really quite secure, clearly we would like to protect them against diabetes, uh, excuse me, against uh, hepatitis and the long-term complications of hepatitis uh, B 
which include, of course, uh, primary liver cancer. So, Dr. Schaffner, you mentioned a second anti-cancer vaccine? Yes, of course, and I'll bet most of uh, your listeners know about this, Kim. This is the vaccine that uh, prevents infection with the human papilloma virus, and of course that virus is the predecessor to, in young women, cancer of the cervix, and in both genders, uh, cancers of the anus and also head and neck cancers. Mm -hmm. So it's now recommended that both boys and girls, as they reach adolescence, be vaccinated, and the vaccine is licensed for use up to uh, 26 years of age. And so, uh, as one of my good obstetrical friends says, if you have a cervix and you're between uh, 12 and 26, you should be vaccinated. And now, in addition, all young uh, boys starting at the same age and going up into the early uh, 20s also should be vaccinated. Uh, so gradually, pediatricians and family doctors and internists, obstetricians, of course, are uh, accepting that and being and, and offering this vaccine. I mean, it's really pretty spectacular notion. I, I didn't think I would see this in my lifetime. Wow. Vaccines wow. that actually prevent not only an infectious disease, but cancer. But oh. cancer. And, and Dr. Schaffner, just quickly, before we go back to, I want to go back to flu and, and the pneumonia and shingles. Before we go back to that, for, for just quickly for a moment, are we, um, uh, you know, we know that we're starting to see some, some vaccines, and this sounds counterintuitive, but some vaccines for people who already have cancer to help sort of harness their immune system to fight the cancer. Can you just talk about that for a moment? Well, there are two kinds of things we're going to be talking about. We'll, let's talk about influenza and those kinds of vaccines that keep all of us healthier, including people with cancer. But there's research now ongoing to try to use elements of a person's tumor to create a vaccine against that tumor that will stimulate an individual's immune system to fight the cancer more fiercely. That's still a research proposition. Uh, and uh, But I have my fingers crossed that as research develops in this wonderful 21st century, we will soon have available uh, a technology that could develop vaccines on a very personalized basis to fight cancers. So let's go back to, um, uh, so for those listeners who are going, currently going through treatment for cancer, and we're you're going to start quickly getting into the, the, you know, the winter months, of the vaccines we've talked about, which, which are safe for people, uh, for people with cancer and are sort of root, a routine part of their care? So let's divide folks with cancer into two groups, those with the solid organ cancers, those people uh, don't have much immunosuppression associated with their cancers, and they can take any uh, of the vaccines that we talk about. And all of us should protect ourselves against influenza on an annual basis, and the best way to do that is to get annual influenza vaccine. And because they have an underlying illness, they also should be receiving uh, the vaccine that against pneumococcal pneumonia. It's the most common complication of, uh, of influenza. 
Now, people who have uh, leukemia and those kinds of bone marrow uh, tumors often take immunosuppressive agents. Uh, they can receive the uh, influenza vaccine, which is an injectable vaccine. They should avoid the form of the influenza vaccine. That's the nasal spray variety, because that's a live attenuated virus. And so those folks with leukemia and who are profoundly immunosuppressed should not receive so-called live viral uh, vaccines. And, and that would include, if they are of a certain age, the shingles vaccine also. So tell us what shingles is and, and who should get that vaccine. Uh, uh, shingles is an interesting story because it relates to the chickenpox virus. All of us, for the most part, have had chickenpox, and uh, we've gotten over it. However, the chickenpox virus resides in our bodies, and then later on, 10, 20 years later, can suddenly come out and can come out in a segment of our body, our trunk, or sometimes more dangerously, on our face. It creates all those little uh, pustular lesions and is associated often with severe pain and even after the little blisters go away, the pain can continue for months and be very, very debilitating. And so a shingles vaccine has been developed, which is live chickenpox virus that's been, that's been attenuated, that is tamed, and it boosts our immunity to prevent the, the shingles virus, the chickenpox virus, from coming out of its cave, as it were, as though it were a bear in hibernation and causing this illness. It's currently recommended for everyone who's not immunosuppressed, mm -hmm. who's 60 and older. Got it, got it, great, great. So this is uh, 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 really fascinating uh, information, fascinating conversation. Um, it, uh, uh, Dr. Schaffner, is there, just quickly, we're, we're going to our break here, but is there somewhere where, where folks can learn all of this? Is there a, a website that you recommend or a couple places where folks can get some more information on this, a CDC site? or? Yes, the CDC has a good website. So the Centers for Disease Control. Centers, Centers for, for Disease, Disease Control. Control, that's exactly right. And also the National Network for Immunization Information, as well as the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases. All of them have good websites. Great. Terrific. That's very helpful uh, information. We like to give folks some resources and places where they can go to, to get this information. A lot of information um, to take in, but I think very helpful if you're someone facing cancer to understand this information. Um, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're talking how to live healthy with cancer. We're going to take a, a quick break here to a commercial, and we'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. 
we hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment rising to levels not seen since the Great Depression. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebel, though today I'm joined on our show by Dr. Schaffner from the Department of Preventive Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, Susan Bratton from Meals to Heal, and Jill Vanek, a nurse practitioner at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, we just heard from uh, Dr. Schaffner about vaccines for those living with a, a cancer diagnosis. Um, I, I want to take some time uh, to talk about something that may seem a little more difficult for people living with cancer, but in fact may be manageable and even in some ways desirable, and that is exercise. Um, uh, so, Dr. Schepner, from a, you know, from, from your your perspective, um, should people with cancer exercise? And 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 if so, do we know you know what kind of exercises are best or what routine is best for them? Uh, exercise is good for all of us, and it's good for people with cancer. You have to be a little bit careful about how strong you are at the at at, at any given time. People with multiple myeloma, which is a bone cancer, have to be uh, cautious. My cousin, who had uh, multiple myeloma, uh, always uh, exercised gently uh, because she didn't want to put too much stress on her bones, but it made her feel much better both physically and psychologically. I'll bet Jill agrees with that. Yeah, Jill, let, let, let's, drill, let's drill down on this. How important, uh, you know, is this? And when someone is not uh, feeling well and the idea of exercise might be the last thing um, on their mind, how do you encourage them to get some movement in? So you're exactly right. And, in fact, studies have shown that after a cancer diagnosis, people do tend to slow down. Stress, depression, feeling ill, going through treatment, and a major issue is fatigue, and um, that basically can tend to make people less active. Um, The problem is, however, uh, a long-term solution to the problem of fatigue is not taking it easy and avoiding activity. So we do encourage our patients to um, take up an exercise routine and to stay as active as they possibly can. The real trick of the trade is, of course, if you are active prior to your diagnosis, it's easier to continue that. You are already at that upgraded level of aerobic health. However, even if you have not started a routine, after a complete physical and an okay by your treating oncologist, it's absolutely important to complete exercise 
exercises that will strengthen flexibility. Aerobic exercise is important as well as resistance training. And even with the issue of fatigue, little things can make a huge difference. Things such as getting a pedometer, just keeping track of your steps, taking the stairs instead of riding the elevator, um, taking frequent breaks throughout the day to stand up, stretch, take short walks. We really do recommend um, that these things be done. A huge help uh, to a person kind of facing this really is a support system, having an exercise buddy, having a caregiver who is willing to go through those steps with them um, usually is a huge source of support uh, for someone in that position. So, Jill, um, any difference if someone's uh, listening today who's in active uh, uh, treatment for cancer versus uh-huh. someone who is, you know, post treatment. I've, you know, I, I have finished my uh, my, my my treatment, um, and and perhaps I'm in remission or you know, finished successfully or taking a break from treatment. Um, any difference in what I should be thinking about in a, if I'm in active treatment versus, you know, kind of post treatment. Absolutely. During active treatment, there really are going to be a slew of medical issues that might put restrictions on the amount um, and time you can um, exercise. Basically, such things as anemia or a very low red blood cell count um, could play a part and obviously lead to fatigue. And there could be um, some limitations in terms of if you have a low platelet count or things that treatment can cause might put limitations on the amount that you can exercise. That's why it's important just to always engage with your healthcare team. Talk to them about what you want to do, your energy level, how you're feeling, and really communicate with them for tips as to how you can stay healthy and strong. During active treatment, a resource that a lot of people are not aware of is physical therapy. Um, Physical therapy is usually covered at least for a few sessions um, by insurance carriers. And, you know, physical therapists can really just do a one-on-one interaction with a patient, show them different tricks of the trade, different tips to really keep them active during treatment. But of course, during active treatment, you need to always consult with your healthcare team because there might be restrictions just based on your medical management. So based on our uh, mm-hmm. previous conversation about um, about the immune system and and, uh, mm-hmm. and and all of that, are there, you know, is is there the possibility that someone's immune system is still compromised? Maybe a gym is not the best place for them to be, or or do they have to be sort of thoughtful about the immune system and germs and things like that? Absolutely, one hundred percent. That is a huge factor during um, active treatment, as well as the immediate or acute um, post recovery phase. And again, you unique to each person and diagnosis, but as Dr. Schaffner was speaking about before, particularly with people with a liquid tumor. They can tend to be immunocompromised from the treatments and suffer from a low white blood cell count or neutropenia as well as a low platelet count, which basically would mean that, yes, we would like them to take certain precautions, not exercise in a sweaty gym when we don't know when the machines have been cleaned and that kind of thing, just to take um, full precautions and really so, speak to the healthcare team. Yeah, and, and Jill, you talked about, you know, the importance of sort of connecting with others Mm-hmm. Um, to, to, to get motivated or perhaps to keep keep on track. I know that at our 
you know, we have more than 50 centers around the country where um, people with cancer come together for a host of, you know, for support groups and education and nutrition, but they also come together for, for, um, for exercise. I think the thing I like about that is that um, we only bring in, you know, folks who are experienced in working with cancer patients to do exercise, with, to do yoga, tai chi, gentle movement, uh, things like that. But what other resources are out there to help patients um, learn a little bit more about these kind, you know, this kind of healthy living or, or, or connect to a community that might be perhaps motivating or inspiring to them? So a number of resources are available within the hospital setting. Um, social workers are a great resource, and basically all healthcare providers really are mostly willing to kind of put patients together, people in similar situations. It's a good benefit to be able to talk to someone who's going through what you're going through. You mentioned the support groups. That's a fantastic resource, the cancer support community has a number of um, resources where you can get in touch with other patients. Websites include um, vetted websites such as the National Cancer Institute, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society have fantastic activities, um, as well as uh, the Live Strong Foundation. They are always a huge proponent of um, exercise. They give a lot of tips about people um, who are actively undergoing treatment um, that are really worthwhile. And what about, what about, Jill, the importance of, so I know with our program, this Living Healthy program, we're trying to um, put together all of these different components. And I know it's a lot to take in, the nutrition, the exercise, the, you know, social and emotional support, the, the you know, the, the, uh, the, the medical management. But how, how important is sort of the interface of all of those things together and, and perhaps to find the program or some resources that are covering all those bases? It's hugely important. Quality of life is a huge, huge factor while undergoing treatment, post-treatment, and throughout the rest of survivorship. And being able to put those facets together and to be able to really um, tap into these different resources is a must for someone um, undergoing treatment for cancer. Um, basically, the process is hugely overwhelming, and you cannot be afraid to tap into these resources and really you know, kind of reach out to the experts as well as support group of people not only going through the same thing, um, but caregivers and people who are there to support you during this treatment phase. And, and Joe, what about what about dealing with the? Um, uh, we're, we're, we're coming up on our break here, but what about dealing with the? Um, uh, perhaps the emotional issue of, oh, my gosh, I used to be a marathon runner. I used to work out, you know, eight days a week. I used to be so active in this cancer, and the treatment has just really knocked me out. I, you know, how, how does somebody manage their their expe- own expectations of themselves about getting back into a routine that's much more modest, perhaps, than what they were used to without really beating themselves up about that? And, you know, you hit the nail on the head. This is a huge problem that we do see. Um, Undergoing treatment does, of course, um, change you physically, at least for that period of time. And a lot of people do have emotional distress about what I once could do. It's important to take it slow and really talk and express your emotions. A lot of people find a comfort level in being able to speak to a trainer or work with a trainer to kind of take them slow and get them back to that level. Um, A lot of people find that it is helpful to write feelings down in a journal or to actually speak to a counselor or therapist during this point in time. It's just important to continue to stress the fact that you're undergoing active treatment, you're recovering from active treatment. It's going to be a slow road, but the buildup can be done. 
And, and just quickly, uh, Jill, Susan mentioned that oftentimes a consultation uh, with a registered dietitian is not covered by, um, by, by our insurance. Is, a, is time spent with a physical therapist, if it is required, is that something that usually would be um, covered by our insurance plans? Absolutely. Physical therapy consults are routinely covered. And again, with um, basically medical um, guidelines or referral from the healthcare mm-hmm. team, uh, it depends on the insurance carrier how many sessions for what diagnosis or comorbidity, of course, but yes, they are routinely covered and are an excellent resource. Great, great. So that's good to know. This is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking about living well with cancer, uh, how to manage nutrition, uh, exercise. We're, we're going to talk in just a minute about managing the social and emotional uh, impact of cancer. We talked about medical management. We talked about uh, we talked about vaccines. Um, a, a host of issues. So a lot to take in. Um, uh, we have a wonderful new program called Living Healthy with Cancer uh, to help you navigate all of these pieces. Uh, I'm Kim Tebow. Though this is frankly speaking about cancer. We're going to take a quick uh, commercial break and we will be right back. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo. Today I am joined by Dr. Schaffner from the Department of Preventive Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, Susan Bratton from Meals to Heal, and Jill Vanek, a nurse practitioner at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Uh, we're discussing the Cancer Support Community's newest program, Living Healthy with Cancer, uh, which is made possible through support from Pfizer. Uh, in our final segment today, unfortunately, we're winding down. I have so many more questions to ask, but I'd like to hear uh, from our guests 
um, uh, I'd like to hear a little bit of their insight and advice um, uh, into CSC's areas of expertise, really social and emotional support throughout a cancer diagnosis. We've touched on it uh, throughout the show. We know here at the Cancer Support Community it's critical to help those impacted by cancer manage the emotional side of cancer as well as the, the, uh, the physical and medical side um, of a diagnosis. So, so, Dr. Schaffner, do you find that most patients speak to doctors about their emotional concerns or are, are aware of this as sort of a, an important factor in their overall care and well-being? I wish, Kim, but I'm, <laughs> it's uh, far from ideal, right? I mean, we're all wanting to uh, and not talk about our emotions too much. Maybe ladies talk about them amongst themselves uh, more than guys do, but uh, guys are particularly difficult uh, with that. And, of course, on the practitioner side, uh, we're all very busy and we're running, and so we don't often let patients know that this is something we're willing to talk about and that we can help them. Oncologists as a group, I think, do much, much better than many of the rest of general internists and infectious diseases doctors, uh, for example, because, of course, they live with patients who have the diagnosis of cancer all the time. So I think we as doctors need to encourage our patients to talk about that. And I would add to that to talk to the family because they too have difficulties with the diagnosis of cancer. They mm -hmm. don't quite know how to relate. Should they talk about it? Should they be frank uh, about it in talking with the, the patient? So we all need help with that. Jill what, Jill, what do you see as some of the sort of more common, you know, emotional things that people are, are dealing with? And, 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 you know, what advice do you give them in terms of dealing with and, and, and addressing those issues? So there is no standard emotional response to uh, the diagnosis of cancer and cancer survivorship. And really, you can't um, pinpoint anything to be a normal emotion. It runs the gamut, and every person is unique and copes with emotions in a different way. Um, you know, initially can go through phases of anger, stress, depression, and of course, fear is a huge, huge emotion um, that we see on a daily basis. And these then can lead to acceptance and adjustment and, and a sense of fight and hope, basically. Um, but basically, advice that we all as healthcare providers really try to give uh, to our patients and, and people undergoing this is that they need an outlet, um, not only for their physical and mental well-being, um, but it, it will aid them in getting through this treatment phase and the intense post-recovery process. Recent so, studies have oh, yeah, please. Yep. No, recent studies have shown that patients um, who expressed dissatisfaction with their emotional support were significantly more likely to be anxious and depressed. Um, and really, we do try and, and get people to either join a support group or really just get some form of an outlet. So, um, Susan, I know we talked about the, um, you know, the, the, the physical impact um, uh, when someone's diagnosed with cancer and, and all that goes on in that, in that regard. But do you see a link, Susan, between, um, between the emotional piece, you know, when someone's diagnosed with cancer, the social and emotional things that they're facing and how that impacts their eating and nutrition? Absolutely. Um, it's very interesting. We're... Um We've been working with some breast cancer patients, and in fact, um, one of the big things that um, that a number of them have have brought up, and I don't think this is specifically unique to breast cancer patients. It just happens that it, it occurred in 
in a breast cancer forum, and that was, you know, the whole concept of, of emotional eating. They're upset about their diagnosis. They're frightened. And, um, you know, in fact, they said, you know, I know I should be eating better, but, you know, I just, I'm grabbing the things that are highly processed and lots of sugar because it just makes me feel better um, in, the, in the short term. So I do think there, there really is a link. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jill, is, is, uh, if someone is really struggling emotionally, is this something that they should bring up um, with their doctor? I mean, is, are we talking about sort of a combination of, you know, medical management and, and you know, social and emotional management, a, sort of a combined approach to, to dealing with some of these issues? Absolutely, because it's important to the treatment process, and it's important for the healthcare team to be aware of the emotions and social aspect of what that individual is going through. And, of course, things need to be addressed on the medical side, such as um, depression, uh, mm-hmm. you know, long-lasting changes in eating habits, loss of interest, problems with sleep, feelings of hopelessness. These can lead to a diagnosis of major depression and things that need to be addressed by that um, medical team uh, yeah. so that yeah. treatment can, can be initiated. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's so important that patients communicate about this and to, to understand that it's normal and, and, a, and a common part of the cancer experience and they shouldn't be, uh, you know, ashamed to bring it up and, and the, the team wants to get them care. Just uh, as we're moving towards the, towards the end of our show here, Dr. Schaffner, in, in your experience, have you seen, do you see a difference in quality of life or even in treatment outcomes between, um, uh, you know, people who seek emotional support and identify and try to manage these issues versus those who don't? Well, for sure, uh, I think there is a difference in quality of life. And uh, I think the comments that Jill and Susan have made are so wise and their advice is uh, excellent. I think the quality of life can certainly be improved if we tend to both the, our, our physical health with cancer and also our emotional health. And I, I think all of us healthy, as well as those of us with cancer, uh, do better in life if we tend to those things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I know we're starting to see uh, more data around impact not only on quality of life but also potentially on our survival. I know there was a study that came out of Ohio State University by Dr. Barbara Anderson where she followed women with breast cancer over about a 10-year period or more um, and uh, showed that women who did with breast cancer who did uh, partake in support programs had a, um, a, a delay in the time to the, the cancer recurring um, and also lived longer. So, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, when I think about these, uh, the, the uh, social and emotional support services that are available, it's, uh, you know, I know, and this is exactly what we do at our centers around the country. It's sort of like your doctor saying, uh, you know, here, here's, a, here's a pill and it's free and it, and it might make you feel better and it could make you live longer. And, and uh, uh, so uh, why don't you give it a try? Um, yeah, and, and aren't those results provocative? And there, there are other results that suggest that, too, and we need more research in that area. Gee, yeah. oh, I hope it's right. I think it's not definitive. But, I mean, doing what we can, both for our physical as well as our mental health, ourselves and our family, certainly yeah. improves the quality of life. That's yeah. disputed. And take advantage, you know, take, so take advantage of all the tools in the toolbox. 
um, I think is really part of the message today. Um, there are lots of different tools out there uh, that are available to you. I, I'm really grateful to you guys for joining the show today. It's been a wonderful conversation. I'm thinking we're going to have to have a part two um, to, the, to this topic because there is so much that, that, that is yet to be covered and discussed, and, and I think this is such good practical information. And truthfully, I think the things that you guys are talking about on the show today are ways that someone with cancer can be immediately empowered uh, to take some control over their life and, and their path and their illness, and, and, and these are ways that they can immediately feel better and, uh, and see some improvement. And, and uh, so I, I think these are such critical tools um, in, in the cancer journey. So I thank uh, folks for listening today, and I'm excited about our new program, our new Frankly Speaking About Cancer program, Living Healthy uh, uh, with Cancer, and I, I want to thank you guys for, uh, for helping uh, to launch this. I want to thank Pfizer for their support of the, the show today and also uh, their support in making this program uh, possible. Um, thanks for joining us today on Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We want folks to know that you do not have to face cancer alone, so visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Support Community.org.